Welcome to the Million Pound Biller Podcast, where we interview people from inside and outside recruitment to give you ideas to help you on your way to a million pound year. Now, over to Adrian Mansfield, the Million Pound Biller. Hi, welcome to another Million Pound Biller interview. Today I'm speaking to Mike Pagan. Mike has been an author and all-round business coach for a number of years now, well over 20 years. And his recent book is on mental wealth and the idea of how we as business leaders need to look at ourselves and our mental wealth, not just our business wealth. I hope you take a lot out of it. And I look forward to hearing your conversations on our Facebook channel afterwards. Good afternoon and welcome to the Million Pound Biller. Today we are speaking with Mike Pagan. Mike's a, an author, a performance coach and speaker. And also, from my personal point of view, he's also ambassador for the Four Golf Business Network, which you and I have met at a couple of times now. So, Mike, perhaps you just uh, give ourselves a bit of an introduction to you and your background, and particularly your book, Mental Wealth. Okay, simply put, I've been running my business for 20 years, uh, performance coaching, non-exec directorial support, going into growing organisations, asking them lots of the ugly questions, and then most importantly, holding them accountable for the things they say they're going to do, and then showing them a mirror of what they say they're going to do, and uh, some of the time debating. And uh, there are times when I'm blunt and direct. Yes, it's necessary. I have not been punched yet by any of my clients, although Zoom over the last 18 months has obviously made me a lot safer. But there are times when you've got to ask the ugly. You can't avoid it. And challenging people about ideas, whether they're good, bad or indifferent, and how to make it work for them in their organizations so that whether it be them as a, a solopreneur or they're part of many hundreds of staff leading that organization in a way where people want to get on board and play. Brilliant. That sounds like a, yeah, sounds like a very rewarding career if you don't get punched at it as well. It seems like a good area to be working in. So just talking about the moment, so the one thing that we sort of kicked off this conversation with is about this idea of mental wealth. And obviously the Million Pound Biller is, is targeted at people in the upper echelons of, of either their own company, recruitment company, or perhaps you know, in the inside of a bigger business, but certainly in the current climate where we've, a lot of us, whatever flavor of recruitment business we're involved in, we've been working from home, that sort of implication of being isolated from a team or from a group of people has certainly come to the fore over the last 18 months. And we're talking more and more about mental health in terms of how that's been affected. But but you're obviously looking at it in just a much wider format in terms of the idea of a solopreneur or the person at the top of an organization and how their health prior to COVID could have been affected. So talk to us a bit about what is mental wealth from the point of view of your side of things? What is it you're talking about when you're talking about that side of things? Okay, well, mental wealth is clearly a play on the phrase mental health, but it's focused very much on the word you used a moment ago, isolation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And isolation kills creativity and prevents decision-making and can in turn then have a detrimental effect on people's mental health because things go wrong. Uh, That is the reality. COVID has made businesses struggle in many, many different ways. Things go wrong. But even before that came about, whether you've got five employees or 5,000 employees, you're sitting at the top of your organization and you're not going to tell a stakeholder you don't know the answer. You're not going to tell a a co-director you're not sure what to do next. Your mates in the golf club, in the the school gate or wherever it is, will always say, just go for it, Adrian, because you always land on your feet. And your employees, you're never going to tell them you don't know what to do next. So suddenly you're in this position of authority, of having to make decisions, but you're isolated. And this is where we need that support network that proactively help us, ask us really challenging questions, 
help us research, dig deeper into the areas and the opportunities and the options available uh, so that we can remove the emotion from certain decisions and enable us to make the correct path or finding the correct path that's actually going to help you move forward. And there's, there's ways of building this. And I refer to it as actually building a mental wealth team mm. of proactive people that have your back. I mean, I absolutely can relate to that. And that's one of the things that really chimed off in my head when I started reading your your outline and the, the new book you've got coming out. The idea of this sort of, when I was running my own company that I, I ran and then lost in 2008, 2009, so a few years ago now. But the idea of, you know, you set your company up, you're a successful recruitment consultant, you're used to working a desk, you probably got, as I had, some P&L understanding and some P&L responsibility inside of a company. And then you disappear out into this new ethos of my, it's my company, I now own it, I now run it. And when you first start out, probably not a lot is different. We just talked about before the recording, the idea of probably some of the IT issues coming up and things like that. But generally, <laughs> from last day on your employed thing to day one when you're working for yourself, there's not a lot different because you end up sort of doing the same sort of things a lot of the time. But it's when you start to bring people in, I found that when I started to go and recruit somebody and put them into my organization, the dynamic as an employer of people, as, a, as the owner of the business changed completely. Because you're responsible then. Yeah. For their mortgage payments, for their rent, for their kids' school shoes. Yeah. Um, and it's a totally different game that goes on there because that responsibility brings sort of a weight that can be quite foreboding if we don't get it right. And it's that transition from sort of being the security in a large organization or even a small organization. You know the salary, you know you're going on there. And then you transition across. And over the years, I've worked with a number of professional sports people when they've mm. transitioned to their life after the professional career. And one of the things that we discovered there was yesterday, you have 35 people getting you on the pitch or getting you on the track or getting you on the court. Yeah. Uh, today, none of them are fit for purpose going forward because they've disappeared. It's like a guillotine comes down uh, and suddenly you've gone from having that whole support network around you to where is it now? And what we need to do, even if you haven't come from a sporting background, it's still today, is that support network ready for you? Are they fit for purpose going forward? And having those people there then really works. And I, just briefly, I, I break it down into four core areas where you find the key people for your mental wealth team. So first of all is your self-care. Self-care for me is about making yourself number one. Mm. Now, I know there's a lot of gurus on interweb who talk about that and everything else but the reality check is for multiple years i've been number six in my family i've got three kids a wife and a dog and i've <laughs> always put myself at number six but if i'm not fit for purpose to look after them when they have a problem then i'm failing so actually i need to look after myself first so that i'm doing what's right by them and that brings in everything to well-being, to nutrition, to fitness. I do a bit of weekend warrior nonsense, so I do stupid activities at times. But they put a smile on my face and they make me feel good. Yeah. So, so that means I'm managing my self-care. Uh, then it's about having a coach. Now, clearly I'm biased and I would say that, but actually having a coach helps you achieve more than you will on your own. Yeah. And that, that's proven across the board, whether it be in sport, whether it be in business, whether it be in school, when you've got somebody pushing and probing and cajoling, it works. Third area is the professional sector. And that's the accountant, the solicitor, and the wealth management. And one of the things in the Western world that we're really poor at is being financially naked and vulnerable with our family. Mm. Our parents don't actually know what we earn or earned. 
and we don't know what they earn or earned. And so if we can't be financially naked with our family, how are we ever going to make decisions about what we really want, the size of the house, the type of car, the holiday cottage in wherever, or just the fact that we want to be able to put food on the table and we need a certain um, level of income. And these people, whilst they're not necessarily on speed dial, they will ask better questions without emotion. They would have prevented me making all sorts of errors in property investing that I did a number of years back, as many people did. So all of these things, it's proactive. And then the fourth area is the peer support group or masterminding. Hmm. And that is where it's a confidential support group where you can have five to eight people there you're asking and challenging as if you were a really nasty consultant, what they're doing in their business, where they're going, everything else, and they're doing the same back to you. It's in total confidence. So you can be open and vulnerable and think, oh, I want to expand here. I want to go there. But it means that you have now built up a network, as I refer to a mental wealth team, of between eight and 15 people who've got your back. It's not the mates in the pub or in the sports or whatever it is. These are people who you know you can go to and say, I'm considering doing this. I've got a problem with X. I could do some help here. And they'll drop things. They'll answer it. Some of them you pay. Some of them are mates or, or sort of work from closer. But that gives you that mental wealth team that helps you make the decisions and not be isolated, alone, and vulnerable to somebody coming along with the stupid idea of buying a property in Cyprus or something like that. <laughs> he says... I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've talked on this podcast before about the idea of coach and not from a point of view of, you know, anything more than, you know, you see the top sports people in the world, you know, Tiger Woods, you and I both like golf and you look at somebody like a Tiger Woods. He's the best golfer, some would argue, that's ever played the game. Michael Jordan, again, one of the best basketball players ever that's played the game. Ronaldo, Messi, whatever sport you care to mention, those individuals that are at the top of their game have got a coach. And not yeah. just the manager at the side of the pitch, but somebody that's actually physically helping them that we don't see in their training facilities, whether that's a strength and conditioning coach or whether it's a nutrition coach or what, as you said about dealing with former sports people, if those people are finding that they're at the upper echelons of their sport and they're using coaches, then why wouldn't we use a coach as a part it's, of it's just, it's, It seems short-sighted, doesn't it? Yeah. And then in that environment, you ask your coach for help. Golf, it'd be in a swing. Swimming, it's in your stroke. In the sport so where is it in the business that you need help? And there's different types of support that you get in a business. There's coaching, mentoring, consulting, and counseling. I find that most coaches will float between different areas. So a consultant gets called in. We've got a problem with X. They write a report. If you pay them a bit more, they'll implement it. If it goes well, you'll take the credit. And if it goes wrong, it was the consultant's fault. Yeah. We know that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. Sad but true. The mentor is, I've built it, learn from my mistakes, let me tell you my story. The counselling is, I've got historical challenges and problems, I need to sit down and work it all through with you so we can really clear the air so I can focus forward. And then the coach is, in my world, a blank piece of paper. Hmm. Where are we trying to get to and how can I help you achieve that? Yeah. So a coach doesn't tell you what to do, it, they help you find it. But obviously, in, in any of those scenarios, there are times when you dip into all of those. Because mm. mentoring, you've got experience. Consulting, you've been booked. Yeah. And counselling, yeah, people do have tears. They are allowed because they are clearing the decks. But without that support, we make mistakes. Yeah. And making mistakes is not forbidden. But if we're making mistakes with a support network, then we can bounce back so much quicker rather than going into that negative spiral. 
there's a couple of questions that, that spring out from that. But the one thing that sort of from my own personal background, and again, I'll, I can relate to that, and I'll, I'll use that as the framework for this really, is when I was running my own company, and even since then when I've been working at a senior level in other people's businesses, the biggest issue I've come across, and, and maybe it's just me personally, but I think it's probably not unique to me, is that idea of ego, that idea that you're supposed to know the answers to these things. That's kind of almost what you're being paid for. So how does you as a coach and this mental wealth concept deal with that idea of overcoming, if you like, somebody's ego when it's not necessarily doing them any good at that point because actually they do need some help? Yeah, because on one side of the equation, you've got ego. And on the other side of the equation, you've got imposter syndrome. Yeah, very true. And, yeah, yeah. and so the two of them are constantly fighting against each other. To quote a good old American first lady, Michelle Obama, whether you've read her book or not, she talks in there openly about being first lady and uh, imposter syndrome, thinking, when is she going to get found out? Because <laughs> she's a very credible solicitor in her own right and everything that works mm -hmm. there. And she had those fears. And it's, it's understanding what is the difference then between ego-led, which is self-centered, versus being found out, mm. and asking those questions so that through a coach, through a support network, that peer support group, when they turn around and said, yeah, is that really going to work or is that just your ego talking? Yeah. And quite often, when you give people permission to just hold up the mirror to you and say, this is a stupid idea, I've seen it fail before, you are going to look foolish doing this, then you're asking better questions. One of the foundations of all sort of coaching support and work that goes on in there is without an emotional connection, behavioral change will not happen. Yeah. So if you're trying to do something differently, until you care enough, there's an emotional connection, you're not going to do it. And that emotional connection can be blocked by ego. Yeah. So it's, it's working out what it is that's doing that. And I mean, in the health world, losing weight, giving up smoking, stopping drinking, all of those things, in moderation, they're all good, bad, and indifferent. But until you actually have a reason to stop, you're not going to stop. Yeah. Simple as. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that emotional connection, more often than not, is the car crash that you've got a scary diagnosis. I've got to give up smoking now yesterday. Yeah. Um, but that's what happens. But we don't always want to hit a life-changing red flag to have to make those decisions. So it's about other people's helping us along the way when they're saying, well, I can see actually you've put on three stone in the last year since you've been, you've got a COVID belly, <laughs> as many of us have. Yeah. And, it, and it's understanding, okay, what are you going to do about that? Well, that's back to the self-care. Who are you going to work with on your nutrition? Who are you going to work with on your fitness and health? Are you going to take up something from yoga to mindfulness? and med What are you going to do that's actually going to stop you doing the default thing of opening the fridge 47 times a day because you're working from home? Yeah. It's not just me. You know, I think that's pretty unique, not pretty ubiquitous across the people who've been, been working from home, I know. So going into that sort of point then, so we've got those four pillars of, of mental wealth, the kind of ideas about, you know, I I'm understand exactly where you're coming from. One thing I took away from reading, I can't remember the name of the book now, which is probably remiss of me, but was this idea of, of actually focusing on number one, on you first, because I'm the same. I'm unfortunately divorced now, but my daughter has still always been my priority. I was flying around the world to try and make sure I got back to see her. And yeah. I sat there with somebody saying, well, hold on. That's all very well making that thing, and you want to do that, and you want to keep doing that, but you've got to make sure that you're fit enough to be able to do all that. You can't go keep getting on a plane back and forth from Abu Dhabi when you're not fit because you're not looking after number one first. So how does somebody, how does one within an organization or within a, a solopreneur type scenario, how does somebody find these groups? So they saw four pillars. How does somebody go out and, and start to do the idea of finding a coach or finding a mentor? Because that can be quite a difficult one if you don't know anybody in the first place. 
Okay, well, the challenge here is to, what I would do is actually score your contacts, your connections, the people that you're close to. And to do that, that just means get a sheet of paper and write down the names of the people, not, not the random connections on social media. These are the people you know. You might put down 15, 20, 45 names, whatever it is. Then score each one of those where one is a low score, 10 is a high score. And as a result of that, we then get a list of different numbers on there. Now, here's the killer bit, okay? If you score somebody between one and three, they know your name. Mm. You've met them once. You've met them at a networking thing. you played a sport with them, something like that. You, but they're not close. They haven't got your back. You know them. If you're scoring fours and fives, then, yeah, you know them. But if you played a sport with them and you broke down on the way there, they'd come and collect you and help you. But if you broke your leg and weren't able to play for two months, they wouldn't ring to check on you. Yeah. yeah so, so you're in that network for a reason. Then you've got your sixes and sevens. And the sixes and sevens could be really good mates. Uh, you go out, you eat, drink, you could even be godparent to one of their children, whatever it happens to be. You know them really well. However, you wouldn't necessarily share your inner thoughts and your inner concerns with them. So you would hold back from that because they're great mates. However, I don't go that far. And then it leaves you with your eight, nines and tens. These are the people that you're comfortable being open, honest, and transparent with, where you're asking them direct questions, and you know full well you're going to get honest answers. You're going to get great feedback. You're going to get serious input from them. Those are the only ones that count. Yeah. yeah so if you've got 20 names on that list and you've got five of them that scored eight, nine, and 10, then add up those scores. And then that gives you your mental wealth team score. Okay. Now, the reality is some people will score very low because they've only got two people who scored eight, so they score 16. Then you've got other people who will score 70. I believe the target is to, to work towards getting into three figures. Uh, I know recently when I did this, I'm in transition currently with my mastermind group, so I'm, I'm in the process this autumn of setting up a new one. So my score is in the 70s at the moment, whereas I, it should be higher. But that's because my support group is being rebuilt at the moment yeah. as I go forward. And it gives us that setup to really understand what's going on as to where you're getting those honest bits of advice and support. If you score with two or three people, those are the people you go to first to say, who else should I be talking to? Because you trust their advice. Yeah. They got your back. So you know full well, look, you know what I'm like. I need to change X in my personal life. Who should I be talking to? And their recommendations you believe in. Yeah. And that's where it really starts to pay in. And as you build up, then suddenly you go from scoring 16 to 24 to 47 and so on. It grows from there. So in six months, 18 months later, you can be in three figures plus with the right people around you. And one, one of the things just to add in before I finish that bit is these people, some of them have a life cycle. Yeah. Yeah, so some of them are fit for purpose for a period of time, but then they're no longer. So you move on. So don't be afraid of an ever-evolving mental wealth team, because it should be. As your transition through times in your life changes, so should the people around you. I mean, this comes back a little bit to, I suppose it's, it's akin to this idea that you surround, try and surround your people with people that you want to be, you almost aspire to be. Would you advocate, if you're looking for a mentor group, perhaps, or, or some mastermind group, perhaps reaching out to somebody that you feel almost is in that next level, where you're looking to get to almost? Absolutely. Um, and say, I would really quite like to be where you are now. 
would you be able to sort of maybe give me some advice and support on that transition? The first mastermind group I created, I invited three people and I got those three people to invite one person themselves. Hmm. So that meant we had seven people who all came together for the first meeting. So it meant that I knew three of them, but there were three I didn't know. So that meant it wasn't Mike's team or Mike's yeah. club. But it also meant, though, that I respect you, Bob. I respect you, Claire. I like your opinions and whatever else. So I want more people that are going to challenge and provoke me. So, yeah, so it's, it's asking those questions. So you've got the right people around you because, obviously, there are different levels in businesses. There are people you want to aspire to. But it's my key point here is respect. If you respect somebody, their opinion, their views, and what they're doing and where they're going, then you're going to listen to what they're saying. Yeah. And it also means that when you're on the other side of the equation and you're challenged them in their business, then again, you're going to put more effort into making the best out of it because it's pushing you. And the other part of a mastermind group, a peer support group is it's not just when you're in the hot seat that you learn and that you develop. It's absolutely when you are challenging others and you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm being such a hypocrite here. I'm saying they've got to do this, that and the other and I don't do it. Or you hear a similar pearl of wisdom coming from one of your colleagues who's challenging Bob. And you're thinking, yeah, that's a good idea. I need to do that myself. So you're always learning. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting on that, on that sort of the mastermind group and the idea of the advice you give to people outside is never the inner speaking, the inner monologue is never the same, is it? You're very nice to your friends. You're helping them, guiding them, supporting them through an issue or whatever. And you're, if you were in the same position, we don't give yourself the same advice. And I think that's the point with the mastermind group. I mean, I've had a couple of these sort of scenarios in my time over the years i suppose i've been on the receiving end in terms of people asking me and i've equally asked other people to be sort of part of a group of support functions or group around me to help me and and i've been asked to be part of those groups and i find them incredibly rewarding actually probably more so from the stuff you give out because it makes you start to think i mean being frank part of the benefit of doing this podcast i found is i've got to talk to people like yourself who i've learned from but equally as i'm doing my little coffee break ones which are sort of 10 minute ones every week i'm starting to think about things that I actually should be implementing myself that I'm probably not. I've come, oh, that's good practice, but I'm not doing it. So I then correct myself going forward. And I think that's the thing with these masterminds. Once you're in a good one, you'll start to pick things up from the other people's conversations that you go, ah, yeah, I should be doing that, actually. And when you're telling people, I, I think you should do this, but I'm not doing that now. I'm going to go away after this meeting and start doing those things. See, many times when, when I've recorded podcasts for myself as well, and I have to listen back to them because when you're interviewing somebody and there's some gems in there, when you're in the interviewer's chair, you're thinking of the next question and where's that going to work from and how's that going to come? Whereas when you're in the listener's chair, driving up the motorway or the freeway or whatever it happens to be, then you're, all right, I, I mental note, that's about 15 minutes in. I, I need to, yeah. oh, I can't write down, I'm driving. Uh, I've, I've got a mental note, I've got to go back to that point because that was, I love that and I need to implement that. Yeah. And, and it's the whole point of all self-development, help, business, support, whatever it is. It, mm. It's all a complete waste of time, energy, money, budgets, whatever it is, if people don't take on and do something differently as a result of it. And, that, no. and that's the importance of everything in the, my world of mental wealth is focusing people to get the right support network around them so that they have the people that are fit for purpose for their way forward. Because uh, yesterday's gone, all those cliches of uh, history and all that side of things. The reality check is if we're going to achieve this goal within three years, five years, 15 years, whatever it happens to be, who are the key people that on that journey that are going to get us working there that we need in our team 
they're going to look out for us. And if they're not there, then ask the people that you're really close to to find help you find them and just be clear. And the better the questions, the more likely you are to find the right results and the right support. And it comes back to that point we mentioned earlier on about ego. It's about checking your ego when you go into this process to realize that you're doing this for your own good. And sometimes that inner ego will fight back because it does. It will. It has done and has done for me in the past. But it's that kind of idea. These pillars are there to help and support you get to your end goal. And even yeah. if the advice you're getting isn't something you want to hear, it's probably what you need to hear. That's the point. That's the truth. <laughs> so you get that kind of ego point. And go, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, okay. No, I do need to. So I think it's partly going into this sort of process with that open mind that you're going to hear some bad truths from people. You're going to hear people that will say, actually, you know, let's take it to a point. You put on a few pounds. You need to go and do some work out at the gym. You need to start putting that kind of the effort in on the personal side because you do. Because it's probably the guy. Probably put myself in but, that but, but part of this, it, it, some of that, you're talking physical weight there, but it's also mental weight. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are we carrying with us that's not actually helping us? Mm. And some of the time, other people can see that far easier than we can. It's, it's like with children. You can't tell your children everything because they have to experience and work it out for themselves as much as parental control freaks. Well, it's the same in a business, whether it's your business or you're at the top of your particular division, whatever it is, you want to control as much as possible. But at the end of the day, if we over-control, people have got to evolve. They've got to learn where their challenges are. Yeah. But that means they need the support along the way that helps them get there rather than being tasered every other day because that never goes down well. And I think, you know, coming back to that other conversation point, we started this thing off with this idea of isolation because of COVID. But I think well, as we come out of COVID and we start to get back to whatever the new normal is, you know, the point is that people at the top of organisations or the people at the top of divisions or, or people in, in those sort of hierarchical positions. You know, I know from my own personal experience, isolation is just part of the job. If you're the MD of your own company, you do feel isolated. You feel incredibly responsible for those below you. You don't feel, as you said, able to share perhaps some of that information. And I think, you know, these building this support body around you is going to be incredibly beneficial to you to be able to unload those concerns, those thoughts, and to recognize if you've got a mastermind group of similar people, from similar backgrounds or experiences to recognize you're not alone in those fears and those worries and that issue of, oh, you know, because everybody goes through, I went through the same as everybody else that I know of that's ever run a recruitment company. But while you're in it on your own, you think you're the only one. Yeah. And having that network, that support where you can ask and be honest, which clearly with employees or stakeholders, you wouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, And that's where the isolation bit gets reinforced. And isolation before COVID came along, sort of 30, 35% of the population knew what isolation was about. Mm. Now it's 98% of the population know. And the, the 2% <laughs> that don't are the ones who haven't been sober since it started, but different story entirely. Yeah, but, yeah. but now people understand what that means. Uh, and if you're a single mum with four kids in a high-rise flat, then you really do know about it. And if you're yeah. fortunate enough to have a garden and all these things, then you've, you've had less pressures, but you're still being isolated. And that whole ability to hug a neighbor, to see a family member that you haven't caught up with, all of those things. Well, now translate that love and that connection and that need for interaction into the business world. Yeah. Uh, and companies coming out three and two, three days a week, two days from home, two and three, whatever. It, company ways of working will change dramatically. But that, that means that that time in the office is so much more important because that's where the learning and the penny drops. Because when you're sitting there in your birthday suit on the edge of your bed with a laptop, 
trying to be professional, whatever else, is very different to uh, having 15 people around you in an office uh, saying, yeah, you really should have put some clothes on today, Mike. <laughs> and, and I suppose coming back from that and just moving on a little bit, because that threat to that model as we go back into the sort of new hybrid working and people going to the office maybe two or three days a week, the threat is that you're trying to really get as much out of those two or three days of everybody's in the office and it becomes a very much a hot housing type scenario where people come in for two days and try and get every meeting they've possibly got to do in those two days. And there's not that kind of understanding that actually we are, as you say in your paper, we're social animals. And actually what people want when they go into those office environments is that ability to interact with people in a more relaxed environment than we're going to potentially give them. So it's about having that kind of time in the office to be just people and talking and bouncing ideas and having that ability to go back to that self-care environment almost that comes to the office isn't just about doing meetings and beating people it's about interacting and catching up with people almost to a degree it it is that self-care piece because in an office having a chat by the coffee machine the water cooler all of those stories that's so important to building relationships and understanding whether people you can trust that you work alongside have they got your back as a work colleague as a boss as an employee whatever but that element there will be a frenzied process to begin with here Mm. as people get used to it through now until the beginning of next year because it will evolve and it will change. There are different industries that will need people in more than others. There's certain industries which have totally thrived at the fact that they haven't had to go. I mean, where I'm based in Warwickshire, there's quite a lot of the game sector based around here. And those companies have doubled and trebled their staff numbers through the lockdowns and everything else. But no generalization, but it is a sweeping generalization. A lot of those guys like to sit in a dark room with a headset on and uh, they don't want to go out and be sociable. Going to work was a big chew for them. So actually, they'll probably continue working four days a week from home, doing all of their programming and their noise at three o'clock in the morning, whichever way works for them. But they'll still be delivering because it's very measurable what they do. So this change will be long term, but the positives are rush hours will have less traffic in them <laughs> which well, would be nice you know there are some the old work life benefit potentially to it but you're right there are going to be recruitment probably is one of those areas where you can arguably have a very flexible workforce scenario because you know we can do a lot of what we do from a desk and a phone at home but it's equally i believe one of those big areas that you do need that social interaction because that's where the buzz for sales comes from a lot of yes. time and frankly i'm finding some of the companies i'm working with at the moment that idea of trying to bring new blood into an organization it's impossible to do via virtual teams or anything like that you can even at the high level, even if you're trying to bring in somebody with experience, you still want them to get into your idea of what a culture is and all that sort of stuff. So as companies start to grow out of this, whatever version of hybrid model they're going to work to, they're going to have to make sure, you know, in that one end of the spectrum of a software company where people are just plugged in and can work from home, they probably don't need to worry too much. But in the middle level where people are kind of working these hybrids, they have to really start to look at how that mental wealth piece fits into that because and let's be fair recruitment industry has a larger percentage of extroverts working in that industry and over through the pandemic times then they've been clawing at the walls trying to talk to people Uh, a classic example is the clubhouse which is that networking set up on iphones and everything else on for me that was just thousands of extroverts shouting (laughs) just i need to talk to people i need to be involved i need to be stroked and loved and it was just noise but for some people who love it for so certain people personality types have really loved lockdowns because they haven't had to go to networking events and smile sweetly and talk to others it's just finding that hybrid and understanding what works for you as an individual back to self-care 
I mean, I, I put my hand up there. Although we're really late, I'll put my hand up to the fact that, you know, my point is I'm exactly that. I love being out there meeting people. One of my biggest bits of our recruitment, in fact, I've been at my first client meeting. I actually put a suit on today for the first time in 18 months, I think it was, to go to a client meeting. And it's, it's amazing. It's just the buzz you get in the morning when you're getting up and you're going to go to meet a client. I spend a couple of hours with the client talking about what they're trying to do and where they're trying to get to. That's probably the biggest thing I love about recruitment is going out and meeting new companies, new clients, understanding where they're trying to get to. And having not had that real interaction for 18 months, I've, you know, I didn't join Clubhouse, but a lot of my colleagues did for that very reason, that they just, they just wanted to sort of echo chamber talk. But yeah, it's, it is, you know, for me, personal self-care, I found... I was in Abu Dhabi for the first six months of lockdown, and then I found it difficult because I was away from my daughter, but I had to be for, because I couldn't travel. They wouldn't let me out, frankly. <laughs> now it's the other way around. I'm, I'm in the UK, but all my clients are kind of a little bit wary about opening up for meetings and things like that. And some of them, frankly, are still in the Middle East, so I can't go and see them anyway. But that idea of just sat in my office every day of the week is in home. I'm kind of itching at the walls to try and get out and do stuff. And as soon as somebody client even drops the idea of a meeting, I think, yeah, I'll be there, because I know that's where I want to be. But equally, as you're coming back out of this, I, that's my person. I've done a bit of work to find out what it is that makes my, floats my boat, if you want to describe it. That's what, come back to that self-care thing. You well, almost one, need one of the things I really think is going to change going forward now, I believe that first and second meetings will be done via Teams, Zoom, whatever equivalent. And there'll be a lot of checking out, a lot of investigation in those, because the third meeting will become face-to-face yeah. and we are going to be far more selfish about who we meet up with because you're not going to go to meetings for the sake of it unless you're absolutely climbing at the walls and you've got to get out but so it means that third meeting so the old um, coffee and the hotel next to the motorway is that an event is that something you're going to get excited by are you going to drive three hours across the country to go and do it no. well you will if there's going to be something positive in yeah. that meeting so setting up golf meetings setting up overnight stays with other contacts, playing golf the following. So I believe the third meeting is the important one, and that will be surrounded, set up around an event. Mm. Uh, so these meetings become fun for both parties involved with it, and then there's other people who can get involved. And the final story I got on there was a colleague of mine, a contact of mine, he went for a meeting only a few days ago, and it was in the Lake District in the UK, So and I think it was 190 miles from his home. He set off on the Sunday, did 110 miles on his bike. He camped on the moors and then he rode the following 90 miles or 85 miles the following day, got up there for the Monday evening, did his day's filming and everything else with the client and his workshops on the Tuesday. And so he cycled with all his gear. So the bike and all his gear weighed about 45 kilos or something like that. And then on the Tuesday, did all of his work, then cycled eight miles back to Penrith, railway station and got the train home talk about third meeting being an event that yeah, to me just raised the bar a bit too far i feel for me at the moment I probably it's had extreme but yeah. hey I, I share it because i think it's just an example yeah. of where we can take this to because he clearly is looking he's got young kids and whatever else but for him it was a brilliant challenge he felt brilliant as having done it succeeded it and he's got a story now as well that he can makes him stand out from a crowd for certain yeah, I, mean, I come back to that self-care piece. You know, it's the whole idea of if that, that's your thing, cycling, then that's a great way of doing killing two birds with one stone is for almost kind of going to do a better exercise, looking after yourself, getting yourself a bit of a smile on your face, delivering the climate meeting and come home. In the same way that, you know, I as keen golfers might say, look, what I'll do is I'll find that I've got quite a few clients, luckily, that play golf. And I go, well, let's meet on a golf, have a couple of chats and then meet on a golf course. And, you know, for me, that's a great way of, A, getting a bit of time with a client and you get four hours with somebody, but equally, 
you know, it's, it's something that puts a smile on my face most of the time, not always with, with depending on the golf game. <laughs> not when you look at the scorecard. Okay, so let's draw to the end now. So in terms of the sort of mental wealth piece, so for me, I think it's been a really interesting sort of chat around the sort of ideas of it. But from a so from a from a person coming at this from a high level sort of builder in a recruitment consultancy or somebody that's sitting up on their own or thinking of going on their own, what's that one tip that you would think that they should be taking away to start this process that will give them the sort of the next best way of going forward with this, this idea and concept? There's two sets of lenses to look at this through. One is for the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, am, am I isolated? Have I got the right people around me? Yeah. yeah. So that is the starting block on that. And then the flip side of that is from looking at the mental wealth of your business and the team, who in your team is isolated? Who has not got the right support network around them? Finding people to help isn't always about you having to spend money as a business. It's about finding the right mental support. It's finding right other people that you can pull in and work with them. And it's also educating because at the end of the day, a lot of the time when we get into this negative spiral of isolation, we do a lot of navel gazing and we just go round and round in circles. We're not making decisions. And it, sort of, oh, it just becomes hard and it becomes more difficult than it should. And that in turn, we can tell. And the way we can tell is by asking better questions. Yeah. So the, the key tip of this is asking better questions of yourself and of your team that work for you and around you to make sure we understand if or they have or have not got the right people around them. Because if they haven't, then we've got that potential to go down the negative spirals, which is clearly uh, what we're trying to avoid by having the foundations around people so they are strong, fit for purpose, and able to deliver 10 times, 100 times as we wish. Yeah. No, I think that's fair point. And I think for me, the point would be being honest with yourself and being honest with those around you. Because if you're not, it's very easy to say you're okay when you're actually not. And there's help out there. Absolutely. Out there. There's, there's people in your group, as you said, that you can reach out to. So brilliant stuff. Well, Mike, again, that is really, really useful. So I guess people, the best place to look for you would be on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, absolutely. Website, mikepagan.com. Easiest one. It's a good religious surname. If, if you land up with Hawaiian surfer, that's not me. That's the other one. That's the other one. We'll put the links to both of those in the description below. Mike's got a load of books out there, really good resources out there. And I'm sure if you reach out to him, he'll be able to help you if you're looking for some coaching and some, some adherence to put your fingers to the fire and making sure you've got to do some of this stuff going forward. So, Mike, thank you again for your time today. It's been really useful. Really, from my personal point of view, it's, I've taken a lot away from it. I'm hoping those that people that are listening to will do so as well. My pleasure, Adrian. Thank you for having yeah. me. Thanks for listening to another one of our interviews. I'll put links to Mike's website and his books below. And don't forget our sponsors, Team Forward, can pop to their website, which will also be linked below. Until our next interview, until our next coffee break, enjoy the journey.